Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, April 7th, 2010. Looking forward to a couple of planned days off here. Tomorrow's going to be a Memorex edition of Fighting for the Faith. Uh, it, it'll be a new one. It'll be our Friday light. We're going to do it on Thursday, and then on Thursday we're doing um, a best of program. So just want to let you know ahead of time, it's not a full week for me, but uh, there'll only be one missing episode. So thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which is to help you to think biblically and to help you to think critically and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. We are kind of in treacherous times, if you would. And what I mean by that is that within visible Christianity, there are just a lot of really bad, false ideas floating around out there in the uh, evangelical waters. And uh, they're not... um, uh, how shall I put it? It's it. It's not like they are safe. It's not like they don't matter. They do matter. And uh, so we we kind of work from a different premise out here. Uh, that one that's old school, if you would, uh, which I think is the right way to go. And that is is that God's word is true. It's true because Christ rose again from the dead. He put his stamp of approval on both the Old Testament as well as the soon to be written New Testament when he was alive, and. Um, he has the authority to speak authoritatively regarding God's word and, and what kind of binding authority it has on us due to the fact that he is the God uh, that's talked about incessantly in the Bible in human flesh. That's right. Jesus is the God who rescued Israel out of uh, the hands of the Egyptians. He's the one who uh, uh, was speaking face-to-face with Moses on Mount Sinai. He's the one who led the children of Israel into the promised land and uh, in, gave instructions for the children of Israel to go to war and to execute his judgment against the pagans and idolaters who were currently living in the land or that were living in the land at the time Israel entered the land. That's that's that God. That's who he, That's who Jesus is. He's that God in human flesh. And he proved this by raising himself on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. This is our first week of uh, of the Easter season in the church, and uh, it's very imperative that uh, you take a hard look at how Jesus looked at the scriptures and strive as Christians to not have an opinion of God's word that's different than Christ's opinion. 
Never do you see Jesus encouraging creativity. Always do you find Jesus admonishing people that they are in error because they don't know God's word or encouraging them to look in the word. And when he, what he tells the Pharisees is that, uh, that the very word of God bears witness and testimony about him. That's right. The scriptures are about Christ. They are not a set of fortune cookie biblical principles that you can cut out of uh, context and apply to your life in order to make your life more easier, better, or whatever. Yeah, that talk about, you know, one of the things I hear incessantly is this talk about, uh, you know, you know, Christians, you know, they have this attitude of, you know, not rearranging the deck ter- chairs on the Titanic and stuff like that. Yeah, well, here's the deal. Um, those people who think the Bible, that the Bible is all about their lives and their abundant living or whatever, somehow Jesus died on the cross so that they can live a more cozy, comfy, middle-class, uh, suburbanite uh, existence. Uh, that's the equivalent of uh, rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Because the the problem that Scripture solves is the problem uh, that that really is caused by our sin, and that ultimately has to do with our death and our judgment before, you know, our standing in judgment before God. We, after all, are God's creation. We're not products of random chance, despite what the Darwinians might say. Oh, and by the way, the last time I checked, uh, Darwin's theory was still just that, a theory. And uh, it, over and again, the the, the uh, evolutionists just seem to be falling woefully short of being able to prove their theory. Uh, why? Because God created the heavens and the earth, plain and simple. So what do we do here? We compare the crazy things that are being said out there to God's word with the understanding that it's true, proven true by Christ. It basically rests on him. And uh, and that's how we go. And unfortunately, a lot of the stuff that's being said out there that shouldn't be uh, said is being said by Christian pastors. Oh, you know, it doesn't. Well, it, it ensures job security. But I would really love to have the problem of uh, being worked out of a job uh, because Christian pastors were repenting en masse and getting back to preaching God's word. Um. By the way, doing a little bit of biblical work today, uh, doing some uh, translating in Second uh, Corinthians chapter four, and uh, it was it's kind of interesting. I I, the, I hate to say it, but um, I found a verse in the ESV that I didn't think uh, really conveyed the strength of the passage in the Greek. Yeah, it's true, but it also kind of relates to what we're talking about here. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn over to Second Corinthians chapter four. And um, uh, the verse I'm looking at is verse 2, but let me start at verse 1. Here's what it says. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. And uh, that's what it says. But by the, by, by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Now, a couple of days ago, in fact, on Monday... Um, I reviewed a portion of the sermon that Rick Warren gave at uh, Anaheim Angel Stadium there in Southern California for Easter, and it was just chock full of problems. And, you know, I kind of asked the question, what do you do with a pastor who pays lip service to the biblical gospel? I mean, yeah, you heard it, and then turns around and says stuff that's just patently false. Well, uh, this is where it gets interesting. The Greek here, uh, renounced disgraceful underhanded ways. Hang on a second. Let me pull up my uh, Greek New Testament and I want to see if I can point this out. 
Um, uh, not practice craftiness. Uh, parugia. Uh, uh, mayday. Uh, do. Uh, here's the here's the word that uh, and uh, the idea. Nor tamper with. It's tamp. The the, the ESV set translated as tamper with. Uh, but uh, the Greek word doluntes, uh, doluntes, basically says to distort, distort, or deceive. It comes from the uh, Greek verb dalao, uh, and um, it means to make false through deception or distortion, to falsify or to adulterate. And so here, the ESV translates this uh, the sentence as. Um, tamper with God's word, but the Greek is actually a lot stronger th- than that. Uh, it's it's this idea that we don't um, make the Bible false via deception or distortion. That's really what that Greek uh, verb means, uh, and um, so to falsify or to adulterate. So if you if you really want to get a stronger way of saying this, is that. We don't. Uh, we've renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or deceit, and, and uh, we refuse to tamper with or to falsify the word of God. Um, you know, uh, by distorting it. So that's really the idea that that's going on there. And uh, you know, immediately what came to mind was Rick Warren. You can't. I've been saying this for a long time. You can't teach sound biblical doctrine by twisting God's word and teaching false doctrine. It's just not possible. I mean, that's like saying that you promote a free market uh, by installing a communist dictator as your president. That doesn't make any sense, okay? In this, it, so the scriptures here, the Apostle Paul is talking about uh, the ministry that he has. Let me read a little bit of this in context. And what I want to do, let's back this up. Three and four. Let's take a look here and get the fuller context. Okay. Second uh, Corinthians chapter three, verse twelve is where I'll start. Let me read this in context. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For for to this day. When they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways, and we refuse to practice cunning or to make void the word of God by you know tampering with it, But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. 
For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, I, I read all of this in context and put it back into context because when you really understand what's going on there in the Greek in Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, then uh, I think one could make the case that because Rick Warren tampers with and twists God's word, he actually is making it void. He's um, basically using it deceitfully. And uh, as a result of it, he's distorting and deceiving people. And so this lip service that he gives to sound biblical doctrine is undone by his distortions and tamperings with God's word, which ultimately end up making it void. Rather, he should put away all that stuff and openly proclaim the truth and commend uh, God to everybody, uh, you know, the true biblical doctrine, commend it plainly to people to hear. But he doesn't. All right. That, that's... I didn't intend to open up the program that way. It just something that was on my mind as far as my study today. Anyway, all right. Today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Man, I've got some wild stuff here. Um, we're going to be listening to uh, Caleb Brundage. Um from Extreme Prophetic, just got a short, little, tiny audio from a short video, um, and uh, the name of it is Stand in the Glory, and uh, that's going to be all kinds of interesting. And then, I don't know if you all have known this, but you might want to put it in your calendars. The Virgin Mary apparently is coming back to Ireland's Knock Shrine, and uh, she's pens- she's slated to appear on May 11th. You know, that's my birthday, May 11th. But uh, so uh, those of you in Ireland, I mean, great news. I mean, the Virgin Mary is going to appear at the Knox Shrine. We'll be reading some of that. And then kind of some of the one of the more bizarre stories from uh, the Easter holiday. Um, Was this in New Zealand? Um, Hang on a second here. I think it was in New Zealand. Uh, What's this article from? Um, yeah, I'll have to check on the, the exact, um, place where this took place, but, uh, I think it was in New Zealand or Australia. The, the, um, uh, let's see, um, crucifixion reenactment at an Australian, at an Australian shopping center. Yeah. They, uh, the police had to shut down a scary crucifixion reenactment that was uh, being staged at an Australian shopping center. And uh, we'll talk about that. And then we, there's a, a L.A. Times story that uh, came out on the 5th uh, that talks about Christians who are bending yoga in order for it to fit their worship needs. And uh, and then we've got question number eight from Brian McLaren, the quote, so-called future question. Uh, this is really kind of dealing with the question of hell. We'll be taking a look at that uh, t- today also. And, of course, we might have to make adjustments depending on time and then uh, for our sermon review time today i've got two more good easter sermons for you uh one from uh, pastor ernie lastman from this year uh this year's ernie lastman sermon uh, easter sermon as well as a sermon from uh, uh the host of table talk radio one of the hosts of table talk radio that would be uh pastor brian Wolfmuller. And I want you to, I mean, he preaches with such passion about the resurrection of Christ. It's ridiculous. And so we're going to be listening to two good, two more good Easter sermons, um, which will kind of close out this week uh, as far as our sermon reviews are concerned. Tomorrow's edition of Fighting for the Faith, we're going to continue uh, 
uh, the last of the uh, lectures that we've been listening to by Dr. Kim Riddlebarger regarding the end times. Uh, we're going to be listening to a, uh, a lecture that he recently gave, uh, basically kind of pulling apart the, uh, the, the doctrine of the rapture. And uh, so well, that's what we'll be listening to tom- on tomorrow's edition of Fighting for the Faith, which will be a, a Friday light on Thursday. So anyway, that's all of the things that we're going to uh, be getting into. And uh, so with that, let's dive into the program proper. <sighs> yeah, that's right. That must mean that uh, we're going to be hearing from the extreme prophetic people. Today we're going to be hearing from Caleb Brundage. And the name of this uh, short, tiny little uh, video is entitled Stand in, in the Glory. Um, see, see what you can make of this. Hey, this is Caleb with XP Media. I just got something for all you people out there that loves to hang out in the glory. That loves to hang out in the glory. Okay, Caleb. What? what um I don't even know what that means. Uh, this is what it says in Ruth Heflin's book. It says, "In what?" It says, "Where?" Who's Ruth Heflin? I mean, this is not the biblical, a biblical book known as the Book of Ruth. This is just some lady you're quoting. Okay. Praise God until worship comes. Worship God until the glory comes. And then stand in the glory. What? (laughs) Could you repeat that for us, uh, Caleb? I'm a little confused as to how this works. Say that again. Ruth Heflin's book. It says, praise God until worship comes. Uh Uh-huh. Worship God until the glory comes. And then stand in the glory. Oh, uh... (laughs) So come on today, let's just praise, praise, praise to worship comes. Worship, worship, worship till the glory comes and stand in the glory of God. Wow. Um, um, what? <laughs> um, yeah, did you all write that down? I mean... That was just an absolutely, you know, free service that we uh, provided for you here at Fighting for the Faith. If you want to stand in the glory, you know what this reminds me of. Uh, do you all remember that uh, public service announcement uh, from what was it the seventies or the early eighties? Um, that uh, it, it kind of went something along the lines of this: um, um, "This is your brain, and this is your brain on the glory." That sound that you hear is the sound of eggs frying in a pan. In other words, don't do this at home. It's just, it, you know, I, I'm, I'm beginning to think that we might need to put out some public service announcements warning people uh, not to bake their brain in the glory. Wow, that was, what on earth? And then talking about just bizarro stuff, um, got a story here. Hang on a second here. Let's cue this up. 
from irishcentral.com. The headline reads, Virgin Mary coming back to the Knock Shrine on May 11th claims visionary. What do you do? I mean, seriously. Okay, um, let's see. Mary coming to herald the second coming of Christ, says Joe Coleman. Okay, Irish spiritual healer Joel Coleman says the Virgin Mary has been back in touch with him. Oh, that's great news. I'm glad she knows his phone number. And uh, she's revealed that she would like to return to the Knox Shrine on May 11th. I have no idea where that is. I'm apparently, apparently that's in Knock in Ireland. Coleman attracted thousands of people to the county Mayo town last October when he predicted that the Virgin Mary was on her way. However, she was a no-show. Oh, that's, you know, I hate when that happens. Um, you know, I, in fact, I kind of understand the frustration of having a no-show uh, occur. Uh, if you all remember a while ago, I I was trying to get Paris Hilton to come on to, uh, to Fighting for the Faith. And wouldn't you know it, she was a complete no-show too. I mean, she wouldn't even, like, answer, I couldn't get her publicist to respond to my emails or anything. I mean, just really embarrassing. Okay, so uh, okay, so Joe Coleman says uh, the uh, Virgin Mary was on her way, but she was a no-show. Further, uh, he alleged that, uh, visits took place in December and January. Apparently, he had Starbucks with her, and uh, members of the public did not witness Mary on either occasion. So apparently, this was a private meeting at a undisclosed uh, location, uh, Starbucks there in the in uh, in Ireland. Coleman, who fe- uh, who hails from. Uh, Fermat in, uh, I know I tortured that. I, please no emails from those of you in the UK or in Ireland. Um, uh, in Dublin, where, uh, not being hailed by the Virgin Mary has, for, uh, foreseen several visits from our Lady of Prompt Succor, but no one else has witnessed her comings and goings. The Dubliner says that the next visit is the big one. Uh, quote, the apparition which Our Lady has told me will take place on Tuesday, May 11th of 2010, which is my birthday, by the way, at uh, the knock at knock, uh, the ninth apparition that he had predicted since September of 2009 is the most significant of all, says the visionary. Quote, the messages I have received from Our Lady over the last eight weeks are of great urgency for the world. She has made it clear to me that the world will witness the second coming of Jesus on earth shortly. It is vital now, she says, that people begin to pray very hard. Uh, Quote, she is seeking uh, conversion and wants people to pray not only to avert world disasters, which apparently are imminent, but also to save souls and seek redemption. Uh, Mary, uh, this is the Virgin Mary, Joe claims, will come and give the world a heads up about the second coming of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Quote, I now believe that our second that the second coming of Jesus on earth is going to happen very soon, within the next year or two, although Our Lady will not reveal the date in advance. Over the last six weeks, I have received the strongest messages of Our Lady so far, and to be honest, I have found some of them disturbing because I believe we're about to witness some terrible turmoils ahead on earth. However, I believe that through prayer, there that there is hope for us all. Well, I mean that it's awful nice of Mary to you know to come and pre-warn everybody like that, and I'm so glad that she picked Joe the plumber from uh, Ireland. Uh, by the way, if you'd like to get an example of uh, one of the messages that the Virgin Mary has given, I happen to have right here um, a uh, a copy of the entire message uh, of that uh, the Virgin Mary gave on March, uh, you know, 
uh, on March 10th. I mean, just, I mean, less than a month ago. Okay, so here we go. Uh, here's, maybe it would help. Hang, hang on a second here. You know, I, there, I, there's just no way I can make myself sound like the Virgin Mary, but maybe I can make my sound, myself sound heavenly if I add a little, uh, hello? Can you hear me? Yeah, let me, let me just see if I can. <clears throat> How's this? No, how about this one? There we go. All right, so I'm making myself sound like a heavenly being. And uh, since I can't, I will never hit the same tone as the Virgin Mary. Uh, let me uh, read to you the Virgin Mary's uh, message that she gave Joe on March 10th, 2010, with my best uh, uh, heavenly being sounding voice here. <clears throat> here we go. Blessings, my sweet child. Today I surround you and give you many graces. I take away the hurt you carry in your heart. You're stronger now, my loved one, stronger than before. You are surrounded with, with God, love, and protection. All of your angels are here with you today, not because you desire them to be, but because they decided to be with you today to ease your burden. It's, it is my Father's will that you be strong for your work, for you, my child, my sweet child, the heavens have opened and you will f uh, feel much strong now peace with you. You notice today I have tears in my eyes and I am sad for my priests here at Knock. You must tell my children to continue to pray for them with all of your heart. Today my most holy rosary was interrupted, the work of the deceiver. This was a test for my people Tell them they must not let this distract them from saying the most powerful holy rosary as the power of prayer makes the evil one cringe. My child, time has now come for conversion. Changes have begun, especially here at Knock. I have told you many times the foundations have been rocked. They will continue to be rocked worldwide. My son, the G the, my son Jesus the Christ, hurts so much when his beloved and consecrated disciples disobey his father's commandments. My sweet child, my message must go out to my people worldwide, for this is most. My people must gather in multitudes at the holy shrine in Knock on Tuesday, the 11th of May, 2010. My holy rosary must be recited at 2 p.m. in all churches throughout Ireland. Uh, so uh, <clears throat> there you go. That was the uh, entirety of the message. Apparently, uh, uh, the origin of that particular uh, heavenly message was the Virgin Mary herself. And uh, she's called upon all of the uh, people in uh, Ireland to gather at the Knock Shrine on May 11th, my birthday, by the way. And uh, she um, wants everyone in Ireland to say the Holy Rosary and... Um, I mean, was it, what are you supposed to make of that? I mean, that's just, just nonsense. I mean, how did they put it? A fool, uh, you know, fool is born every morning, uh, every minute, something like that. Anyway, sucker is born every minute. All right, we're up on our first break. Good night. What a mess. Um, he, here's the deal. Even apparitions of the Virgin Mary have to be tested against God's word. And I didn't hear anything in that that made any sense whatsoever. Although I'm beginning to think that uh, the Irish version of Joe the Plumber is probably making off pretty well financially due to his very private meetings with um, the Virgin Mary, which no one else seems to be 
seeing. Anyway, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Paget in left field. But wait! Booz Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam-dunks from the foul line! That's a birdie! The crowd is going wild! When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch. And then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe. He's safe. That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. 
That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. Warning, if you think that you're hearing messages from the Virgin Mary, you need to get away from that shrine and go put your nose in the Bible and start reading it. All right, need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means that uh, we depend upon your generous gifts and contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you. You can support us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and when you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons one says join our crew the other says donate and here's how this works if you join our crew what you're doing is you're signing up to have six dollars and 95 cents which is nothing automatically uh contributed to uh our fighting for the faith coffers here if you would we don't have coffers anyway but uh the idea is is you're setting it basically setting up uh to automatically contribute to our cause six dollars and 95 cents a month our goal is to have a thousand of our listeners uh join our crew and once we get to that number that ensures that we're able to pay all of our bills kind of important uh because uh paying bills Make sure that we can continue to stay on the air, and uh, that's uh, you know it's very vital that we do that because we don't have the ability to uh, go into debt. Of course, if you'd like to send an amount in of your own choosing, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box five zero eight Fishers, Indiana, zip code four six zero three eight. Okay, time for a Brian. McLaren update. That means we have to play our Brian McLaren song. When the moon is in the seventh house and Jupiter aligns with the Mars, then peace will guide the planets and love will steer the stars. This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. You know the song, sing along. Okay. Um, (laughs) uh, Question number eight is out, the future question. And I want you to listen carefully to this little conversation with him and Spencer Burke. And... 
Kate, we've got to uh, ask this question. How does he know this? How does he know what he's about to say? He's making he's going to be making claims about the future and in, 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 in relation to God and judgment and stuff like that. And my simple question is, is really, how did you come to get this information? Where did you come by this knowledge? Who told you this? And then we'll point out some of uh, the um, well, how, how do I put it? Um false propaganda statements that he says in relation to what Christianity uh, teaches and confesses. Yeah, just, uh, well, let's listen carefully. That's McLaren playing the uh, piano and Spencer Burke has just come out from behind like a side panel on some stage, uh, you know, they're apparently in some theater. By the way, Spencer Burke runs the ooze.tv. By the way, if you are having anything oozing from you theologically, you need to go and see a doctor of theology immediately and get that cleared up. Oozing is not a good thing. Kind of messing around, improvising, really. Mm-hmm. That reminds me a little bit of Chapter Eight, the future question. Yeah, that's right. It's it's it, not like they scripted this or anything. So, a chapter about eschatology, our, our understanding of the future. For a lot of people, it means, do we believe the Bible predicts the future? That kind of a thing. And you're right; it is a little bit similar to a song because, for a lot of people, the uh, to believe in God means to believe that history is like a song that's already composed, already written, and the notes are just playing. Whereas I'm proposing something kind of different in the chapter. Well, in the book you use. And that's kind of interesting here. Uh, History has already been written. It's a song that's already been written, but uh, and it's just playing out. Yeah, that's not exactly the uh, what I would consider the biblical way of looking at history. History is heading towards something. And Christ has definitively told us that he's going to act in history. In fact, if you were to look at the... um, early church's um, view regarding the end times, which, by the way, can be found just in simple uh, in, in the simple creeds. Hang on a second here. Pulling out my Lutheran hymnal. Uh, just want to make sure that I'm, you know, I'm not, um, how do I put it, you know, uh, winging it here that uh, I'm actually quoting you to, to you the actual creeds of Christendom. Uh, let's see here. Divine service uh, two. Uh, why don't we go with uh, setting three? Hang on a second here. Uh, okay, confession and absolution, service of the word. Ah, Nicene Creed. Here we go. Uh, yeah, here we go. Interesting. You know, Nicene Creed is a fourth century creed. And uh, let, me, let me read to you. Um, <clears throat> I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. By the way, creeds are, you can consider them to be compact summaries of major doctrines or, or, or major blocks of doctrine and theology of, of the scriptures. The creeds in and of themselves are not authoritative. They're authoritative in, only insofar as they correctly tell us what the scriptures teach. And so here's a summary of Christian doctrine from the fourth century. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, 
very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven, and he was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures, and he ascended into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. So there you've got from the um, Nicene Creed this idea that Christ is going to come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. And here we've got the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, and he descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. So uh, the, the ancient Christians who compiled these, these summaries of major Christian doctrines uh, in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, clearly believe that uh, eschatologically, by the way, eschatology, talking about the last things or the study of the last things, the end, if you would, uh, basically came to the conclusion that God's word teaches that there is a last day coming and that on that last day, Jesus will reappear from heaven to judge the living as well as the dead those who are living at the time of his return and those who were, well, long since uh, passed. Um, so um, who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe the ancient Christians who drew these uh, creedal summaries from God's word? Or are you going to believe Brian McLaren, who is basically destroying, That's he is waging war against biblical Christianity He's attacking the, the authority of God's word. He's attacking the idea of individual salvation. He's, now he's attacking you know, the, the, basically biblical eschatology. And what is he replacing it with? Basically a new political religion that's designed to solve world problems. You'll hear some of that here in a second. Let's continue. Jonah is an example of this. That's right. Uh, the book of Jonah is so interesting because Jonah makes a prediction about the future. But God's hope in giving Jonah this prediction is... Now notice, he at this point, he's not going to the clear words of Christ, where Jesus Christ himself tells us what it's going to be like in the last days and tells us that he's going to return, and tells us that the angels are going to gather everybody up, tells us that he's going to judge the sheep and the goats, tells us all that. No, 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 he's going to a different... Oh, yeah, we're going to the book of Jonah to do our eschatology. That the prediction will not come true. And in fact, it doesn't. Mm -hmm. So it, it tells us that predictions are, are actually more warnings than they are foretellings of the future. Oh, I see. So Jesus was just warning us that he might come back to judge the living and the dead. But if we're good, responsible earth citizens who care for the planet and care for the poor, that he won't come. It's just a warning. See, all we've got to do is get on the right uh, social, social political program and Jesus will sit up there in heaven and go, oh, goody, they got it right. I guess I don't have to come back after all. The other interesting thing about Jonah 
is it's the only book in the Bible that ends with a question. God asks a question as if to say at the end of this book, the future is open. And that's uh, hang on a second here. I didn't check this out prior to going on the air today, but let's go to the uh, the book of Jonah. Um, Jonah chapter 4. Let's see here. Jonah went out of the city and sat in the east of the city and made a booth for himself. This is Jonah chapter 4, verse 5. He sat under it in the shade until he sh- uh, should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might uh, provide shade over his head to save him from discomfort. That's awful nice of God. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he could die, and he said, It's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should now, should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Here's the deal. Jonah, when he finally um, decided to obey the word of the Lord, uh, after that little fish excursion that he had, um, he goes, the word of the Lord tells him to go to Nineveh, and the second time around he decides, you know, I probably should go to Nineveh. And what did he do? He preached repentance. And what did Nineveh do? They repented. And God relented. Okay, now um, here's the deal, Brian. Um, you don't preach repentance. You preach idolatry. You preach false doctrine. You see, we biblical Christians uh, who hold the historic Christian faith have to preach repentance to you and and warn you that you're going to die someday, and that God is going to return in glory to judge the living and the dead. By the way, here's the deal. Okay, I I hate to put it this way, uh, but should Christ continue to tarry? Every single one of us, me included, uh, everybody who's listening to this show as of the broadcast date or in and around its original broadcast date, which is uh, Wednesday, April seventh, twenty ten, within a hundred years, we're all we're all worm food at this you know at that point. Um, so we all have a coming eschaton, if you would, a mini eschaton for each of us individually. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of, McLaren kind of misses that too, but uh, let's, let's continue. So apparently, see, we don't have to look at Jesus's clear teachings about the end of the world or the apostle Peter. <sighs> Hang on a second. I think it would behoove me to actually give you a little bit of the Apostle Peter, um, who hung out with Jesus, by the way. I mean, I understand Peter was not a Ph.D. or that he wasn't uh, well-versed in modernist philosophy or postmodern ideas and that he didn't get a chance to read Nietzsche. Um, and, you know, but uh, here's what um, the Apostle Peter says. I mean, kind of in you know, pull-no-punch fisherman's terms. 
He says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them and bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. And their condemnation from long, long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, who was a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he continued uh, condemn them to be to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds, and and he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Let me continue. This is interesting. Um, Chapter 3. Now, this is the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In, In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through through your apostles, knowing, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. I think McLaren fits into this category. This is a form of scoffing that we're hearing from him. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact. That the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged in water with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years well as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. Now, I want to point something out here. The Apostle Peter, who, by the way, I mean, I understand he's not a Ph.D., he's just a fisherman, but he spent three years of his life being instructed and taught directly by Jesus Christ. And here, the Apostle Peter doesn't liken the prophecies regarding Christ's return to be threats or warnings, instead he considers them to be promises. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward us, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach, reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar, the heavenly bodies, they will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, that's a promise, not a warning, uh, what sort of people ought you to live in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening or looking, you know, basically looking with uh, anticipation for the coming of the day of God? 
because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom that was given to him. See, the Apostle Peter, and I understand he's not a PhD, I understand he never had the opportunity uh, to read Nietzsche, never had the opportunity to experience for himself the wisdom of modernist and postmodern philosophy, uh, but he did spend three years with Jesus, and he likens the end of the world not as a threat, but just as a promise. Because the return of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, from the Christian point of view, is promise. It's not threat. Why? Because in Christ, those of us who've been given the gift of repentance and the forgiveness of sins, we anxiously await the return of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, the day in which we can see him face to face when he will look upon us, not because we're righteous in and of ourselves, but because we're clothed in his righteousness. And he will say to us, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Come into your rest. Jesus himself said that he goes away to prepare for us a, a, a room or in his father's house there are many mansions or rooms, if you would. And he goes to prepare a place for us and he's coming back. And it's all gift, it's all mercy, it's all promise, it's great hope that things will be made right. That as it was in the beginning, before the fall, it will be again and will be like that forever. No war, no death, no disease, no tears. I mean, this is all promise. And so from the point of view of a Christian who knows that his sins are forgiven, knows that Christ died for all of their sins, knows that Jesus is returning in glory, the day of judgment is not a day that we fear or dread. It's a day that we anxiously look forward to. And so from the Christian point of view, it's promise. But see, from Brian McLaren's unregenerate, heretical point of view, it's threat. Well, it's only threat to those who persist in unbelief and unrepentance and refused God's gracious gift of the forgiveness of sins won by Christ. Knowing that, well, you don't want Christ? Well, fine, you can have God's judgment. It's foolish, stupid. It's really what I, I believe uh, we need to consider now. Not that... All of history is a done deal. It's already determined. But that we're actually participating with God in the writing of the song. This is a pretty strong point. Okay, so that's a nice, beautiful little metaphor, that we're participating with God in the writing of the song of history. Uh, could you back that up with anything, Brian, um, you know, from Jesus teaching um, the apostles, prophets, anything like that? Or did you just kind of make that up all on your own? 
point because it seems to contradict so much of the eschatology that's out there now. The last times uh, or 2012, all these kinds of predictions that people have. Oh gosh, people get obsessed with these different predictions and there are charts and maps that tell the future. You know, I, I think this is based on a number of profound misunderstandings of the Bible. That I now, I, I, I agree that there's some problems with the dispensational uh, premillennial way of looking at things. I agree with that. That being said, uh, the dispensational premillennialists are still, with the rest of Christian history, looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ in glory to judge the living and the dead. They just have a, a pretty complicated, and I would even say a biblically challenged, uh, view of how that's supposed to all play out. But they don't deny Christ's return in glory. Just because somebody's got it, you know, has gotten into speculation as to how uh, this is all supposed to play out doesn't refute the fact that Jesus Christ clearly teaches that he was going to return. And the apostles said the same thing. I mean, I understand they weren't PhDs. I, I get the fact that they didn't get the opportunity to read Rauschenbusch. Uh, I understand that they didn't have the opportunity to really imbibe in uh, the you know these postmodern teachers who are teaching all that all the religions all are one and, and didn't get a chance to read Phyllis Tickle's book or but they did spend three years with Jesus and they did teach that Jesus is returning in glory and it wasn't threat it was promise I go into in the book well in light of the left behind series uh, eschatology 2012 why do you think this is important well, for so many people, they get into these bizarre predictions and they get obsessed with all these charts and figuring out who the Antichrist is and all this. I think that's just a profound misunderstanding of the Bible. Uh, I think this issue is so important because if we have an eschatology of despair, if we believe that... Yeah, but see, that's the thing. If you read Peter and the end of the world isn't an eschatology of despair, in his own words, it's promise. God wants to destroy the world, then why are we going to get involved in taking care of the planet? Why are we going to get involved in... Whoa, 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 whoa. Hang on a second. I want you to hear this in context, because here we go. Here comes Brian McLaren's ideological fascism in play here. Hang on a second here. Let me back this up. Listen carefully. Because if we have an eschatology of despair, if we believe that God wants to destroy the world, then why are we going to get involved in taking care of the planet? Why are we going to get involved in, in, uh, in w working against poverty? Why are we going to get involved in trying to stop wars? I mean, a lot of people... Whoa, okay, so <clears throat> if we have an eschatology of despair, yet the Apostle Peter, I understand he wasn't a PhD, but he did spend three years with Jesus, considers the end of the world, Christ's return in glory, and the destruction of everything to be a promise not despair, to be gospel, not law for the Christian. And then what was these three things here? Um, why would we not, if you have an eschatology of despair, you wouldn't care for the planet, care for the poor, and end war. Hmm. Is caring for the planet, caring for the poor, and ending war, is that the gospel mandate? Jesus said in Luke 24, proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. Go and make disciples. He didn't say go and end war or uh, engage in planet care or, uh, you know, engage in a war against poverty. Now, I listen, I'm all for caring for God's creation. There are other passages that make it clear that that's our job to care for the creation. Plus, I mean, I mean this is just simple 
selfish thinking, if you would. Um, you know, I hate sleeping in dirty sheets. You know, think about it for a second here. Uh, this is a metaphor. Um, you know, I mean, there's nothing grosser in my mind than the idea of having soiled sheets and then sleeping in it. One of the reasons why, personally, I don't mind caring for the planet is because, well, we all have to live here. I remember the days when I was a young lad in the 70s and early 80s in, in Southern California, and we had smog alerts. Those things were awful. Okay, they were just terrible. I mean, you at the end of the day in, in a smog alert on a, on a summer day, I mean, if you spent any time outside, your lungs physically hurt. They physically hurt because the air quality was so poor. Your eyes stung because the air quality was so poor. So I understand what happens when we don't care for the planet. And what ends up happening is, is it affects all of us. So I have no problem with caring for the planet. God tells us to do it. And despite the fact that Scripture says that we're going to have a new heavens and a new earth, that doesn't, that doesn't exempt us from doing this. Now let's take a look at number two, caring for the poor. Um, Christians have believed for two millennia, Brian, that Jesus was going to return in glory to judge the living and the dead. Two millennia. And yet Christians for two millennia have cared for and loved their neighbors, their poor neighbors, by providing for them in times of need. And this all despite the fact that, that according to Brian McLaren, they had a theology of despair. Now, what was the third one? Ending war. Um, notice here that Brian McLaren is just all for, he's ideologically for, quote, ending war. Um, where would Europe, where would the world be today if the United States had not fought World War II? What would have happened if the United States, Great Britain, Australia, and Canada not waged war against the Nazis? Where would the world be today? Yeah, see, I'm not of this opinion that all war is bad. I think all war is terrible, but sometimes it is a necessary evil. It is a necessary evil. As a student of history and a student of World War II, I can tell you this. Brian McLaren wouldn't have the freedoms that he has today to attack and destroy the Christian faith had the Nazis won the war. Let's continue. I think God wants there to be wars. And so anyone who works for peace is actually going against God. I mean, that's where this idea of... That's just a patently false uh, non-secretor, uh, Brian. Your logic is way faulty. A determined future is so destructive. Hmm. This seems more like a co-creation model. Well, I call it a participatory eschatology. I call it just complete scubalon. Um, by the way, the Greek word scubalon, that's uh, pretty intense. It basically means, think of a, um, well, uh, think of a big steaming pile of uh, dog excrement. That's kind of what scubalon is. Yeah, see, Brian, you're just making this up. We're participating with God. And so, you know, the song... Again, where does it say this in the Bible, Brian? ...is going along. And if you say, what comes next? Well, the answer is, 
let's find out. Mm-hmm. Let's let's be part of it. Let's see where the song is taking us. Let's work with God in the creation of a beautiful, better future. So how to- of a beautiful, better future. What is that? Brian McLaren's utopian philosophy. He's a utopian. Why? Well, because he holds to socialistic and Marxist ideology. He's a utopian. He thinks the kingdom of God is us using, basically creating a global fascist uh, economy and government that solves all of these problems. But see, here's the deal. Let's say for a second... I can wave my magic wand. Now, I, the outcome is not going to be one that you want that you're going to want. But let's say I can wave my magic wand, and I, I declare via my magic wand that, I, that the entire world is now governed by a benevolent dictatorship of socialist fascist principles, and that everybody participates equal in the economy, that we have eliminated poverty, there is no more war, and we've gotten rid of religious factions. Voila! Boo! We've gotten rid of... The problem is is that uh, we still have the problem of death and sinners and um, people uh, dying and going to hell. You see, he thinks the kingdom of God is supposed to be here on earth and that we can be co-creators in making it. By the way, the kingdom of God is here on earth. It will be. But it isn't yet. And it's when Christ returns in glory and creates a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness reigns, not in this current corrupt fallen system. Is it in? <laughs> Well, uh, any musician knows that the purpose of a song is not to get it over with. This obsession with ending it, that's not how a musician thinks. A musician wants... Yeah, but see, the thing is, is that uh, Jesus wasn't writing music. He was telling us what his promises were for the end. ...to feel the song and enter it and let it go where it's going to take us. And, and so maybe the best answer to that is that with God, the creativity never ends, the inspiration never ends, so the song never ends. And that to me, yep, this is all just scubalon. Means that there is nothing but hope and nothing but a bright, uh, beautiful, beautiful future. Oh, I see. Yes. We've played this song before here. There's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow shining at the end of every day. There's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow, and tomorrow's just a dream away. Man has a dream and that's the start He follows his dream with mind and heart When it becomes a reality It's a dream come true for you and me So there's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Just a dream If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning for the written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk to you about auto insurance. As the father of two teenage drivers, I know how expensive auto insurance can be. But as expensive as auto insurance is, it's nothing compared to the cost of not having it when you need it. That's why I'm excited to have Allstate Insurance as one of Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertisers. Did you know that drivers who switched to Allstate saved an average of $396 per year compared to what they were paying other companies? Now, I don't know about you, but I think $396 is a lot of money in these tough economic times. Why don't you give Allstate a call and see how much they can save you? You can reach them toll-free at 877-246-1511. Again, that's 877-246-1511. The good folks at Allstate will be happy to give you a free quote over the phone. And remember, you're in good hands with Allstate. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. Okay, we're back. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. We're in hour number two. We're going to do our sermon reviews in just a second here to save this yoga thing until next week. Put that over in the stack here. Things to talk about when I come back from my little mini vacation. I do want to read this, these two stories. This is bizarre.
Okay, from the Telegraph in the UK, a story written by Bonnie Malkin from Sydney, Australia. And uh, this is just bizarre. I mean, every Easter, it's we get some really weird stories. Like every year you get the stories of the... Uh, uh, some people in the Philippines that uh, volunteer to allow themselves to be crucified for a little bit of time. Yeah, that's always fun because they want to participate in Christ's sufferings. And, you know, something to keep in mind, uh, those of you who are, you know, just tempted to think about being crucified. Um, uh, Peter himself, the Apostle Peter, church history records that when Nero was getting ready to have him crucified, he threw a fit because he didn't consider himself worthy to uh, suffer the same way that Christ did and to die Christ's death. And uh, and so um, uh, basically the, uh, Nero's uh, Roman guard basically said, all right, suit yourself. So they crucified him upside down. <sighs> anyway, um, so the, I don't even know what to make of this story. Uh, the Heaven on Earth Church Group, Heaven on Earth Church Group, Sounds like something from Brian McLaren's world. Uh, the Heaven on Earth Church Group had set up a reenactment complete with um, a half-naked, bloody Jesus on a large wooden cross to coincide with the Easter long weekend. However, residents of Geelong complained to police, saying that the sight of a man covered in blood was absolutely disgusting and that it had upset young children. Right. <laughs> Exactly. So apparently this uh, the name of this church group is the Heaven on Earth. Um, it makes you wonder if they're a cult. But they decided that they would um, – uh, how do I put it? They decided to reenact Jesus' bloody crucifixion um, in a market in, um, in Australia. Luis Bridges, who lives close to the Market Square shopping center where the reenactment was staged – said he uh, that his uh, six-year-old son had been disturbed by the scene. Quote, my son was worried uh, they were really hurting Jesus because he was covered in blood and moaning and calling out, why, why, she told the Australian newspaper. Police use law, laws forbidding obscene, threatening, and indecent language or behavior in public to shut down the display. But Pastor Sarah... Uh, Keneally said they had missed the point. She said the reenactment was supposed to, quote, get people to stop and think about what Easter is really about. Yeah, so here, okay, so let me see if I got this straight. The Heaven on Earth church group who has a pastrix named Sarah, yeah, it's Heaven on Earth, there's a problem. Pastrix, there's a problem, decided that they wanted to create, you know, emergent conversations about Jesus's crucifixion and what Easter was all about. So they decided to come up with this great idea of actually um, staging a bloody reenactment of the crucifixion at a shopping center in in Australia. Good night. Let me read the story from another source here um, from a, a newspaper in Australia. Geelong police shut down a bloody reenactment of Jesus on the cross in Mallop, uh, on Mallop Street on Saturday afternoon deeming it too offensive for public viewing members of the heaven on earth church in norlang staged the lifelike performance outside of the market square shopping center at 1 p.m it featured two women mourners in black and semi-naked in a semi-naked jesus covered in fake blood crucified on a large wooden cross uh, other members of the heaven on earth church were in attendance according to or the organizers 
uh, of the crucifixion reenactment, the show came to a sudden end when the police arrived. Quote, we were pretty disappointed the police didn't uh, did it the way they did, said Pastor Sarah Keneally. Uh, they didn't talk to us first. They just came and yanked the cord out of the amp and said we had to stop. We got through 40 minutes of Jesus hanging on the cross with two women mourning and instrumental music. It was. I was a bit disappointed we weren't allowed to have uh, an hour-long demonstration. Hamlin Heights, Mother Louise Bridges, slammed the performance, calling it an absolutely disgusting stunt. Uh, she said she was fuming at the uh, public display and said it would scare children away from religion. Um, uh, she said her son was disturbed and wasn't able to differentiate differentiate between real and fake blood. It was in your face coming out of either shopping center. You just couldn't avoid it. It was. I was horrified, she said. My son was worried, and they were really hurting Jesus because he was covered in blood and moaning. With the violence problem in Geelong, what is the difference uh, to a six-year-old with a man lying bashed in the gutter? And this, police stepped in and, uh, to stop the performance in response to public reaction, according to Geelong Acting Sergeant Matthew Sims. Now, I am not in any way condoning the uh, be, uh, this reenactment on the part of the Geelong uh, the Church of uh, of the Heaven on Earth, whatever, in their female pastrix i do point this out though that um that does kind of get to the heart of uh, the whole idea of the scandal of the cross people living in the first century especially in palestine in, in israel uh under roman occupation they got to see this thing for real uh they got to see people being crucified on a regular basis. It was quite a spectacle designed to really kind of, you know, rub, so, so, so-called rub the sandal of the Roman soldiers in the face of the people that they were ruling. Yeah, it was quite a deterrent, quite a spectacle, quite a display, quite a shock. And, uh, and see, that's the thing. When we talk about Jesus's crucifixion, we're talking about something that was as disgusting and even more because of the fact that it was true. And keep in mind, Jesus got special treatment. He had special treatment. Not only was he crucified, which he was, but he got to he got the double pleasure of being scourged first. And so when we talk about preaching the scandal of the cross, that this story kind of brings out the whole scandal of it. You mean that guy who was bloodied, beaten, dying, tortured on the cross. That's that his blood being shed there was for the sins of the world. Yep. That's what we preach. I choose to know nothing except for Christ and him crucified. Yes. Interesting story. Anyway, moving along, it's going to be time here to do our sermon reviews. And I've got two more good Easter sermons and I know it's going to sound redundant, but uh, I've, I've, I've earlier played a, ser- a sermon by uh, Pastor Ernie Lassman, and I'm going to play another one of his uh, this from this year because uh, this year's just went up on his on their website. So I think it's worth sharing. The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. We've got two short, brief, good Easter sermons for you to listen to today. Both of them will point you to Jesus Christ, crucified, 
and raised again on the third day for the forgiveness of your sins and mine. No speculative theology will be going on. Nothing there about resurrecting your dreams or showing you that it's never too late for a miracle or Jesus' resurrection gives you a do-over. None of that stuff because all of that is completely false. Instead, you're going to hear biblical Christian preaching. This is what you need to be hearing, not just on Easter, but this is the type of preaching you need to be hearing Sunday after Sunday, preaching that points you to Jesus Christ, the scandal of the cross, and the great and glorious news that Christ died and rose again for the forgiveness of your sins and for your justification. So with that in mind, let me kill this music. Here is Pastor Ernie Lastman from this year's, this is this year's Easter sermon. The name of it, plain and simple, The Resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's Pastor Ernie Lastman. The Lord is risen and God's people say, Alleluia. Our sermon for this Easter Sunday is based upon our second reading. It's on the back of your bulletin for further review. My fellow redeemed in our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we certainly try so hard to deny it. We try so hard to cover it up. We often try to make it look so much better with flowers and makeup. And of course, if it was in our power, we would stop it from ever happening. Of course, I'm talking about death. Now, there's a cheery subject. Who enjoys talking about death? And I think, of course, part of the reason besides the sense of loss is why talk about something that you cannot change. And of course, as in all of life, something cannot be changed, something cannot be fixed, something cannot be solved until you first know what the cause is. Perhaps a classic example of this is that disease scurvy. Scurvy was a condition among sailors before the middle of the 18th century, and sailors would take long trips, and they had all kinds of health issues. They would become weak and tired, achy with muscle and joint pain, also tiny red blood, blood blisters leading to larger purple blotches would appear on the skin of their legs. Wounds would be slow in healing and never really heal properly. And their gums would swell and bleed and their teeth would become loose. Indeed, in the 18th century, scurvy killed more British soldiers than combat did. And then a Scottish doctor by the name of James Lynn discovered the cause, the lack of vitamin C. And so they added to all the sailors' diets juices and all kinds of fruits. And almost overnight, that dreaded disease of scurvy disappeared. A solution had been found. But of course, on the much bigger scale, everyone dies of something. And we know as Christians that science and medical doctors will never find the ultimate cause for death because death is not based upon a scientific reason. Death is based upon a theological concern. According to the Bible, people die because of their rebellion against God. That's sin. And the reason for that is because sin cuts people off from God. And God is the only source of life. 
And so then to be cut off from God means to be cut off from life itself and to die. But of course, on this Easter Sunday, this joyous Easter Sunday, we Christians know that there is indeed a cure for death. What science and medical doctors cannot do, God himself has done. And that solution, that cure, of course, is Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. Oh, yes, Jesus Christ was dead. No doubt about that. And then on the third day, he rose again from the dead. Not even the disciples were expecting that. What a shock. What joy. And it's so important because the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the proof to us that dead bodies can be raised. If Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead, why would we think that dead bodies can be raised? His resurrection is the foundation of our Christian faith. Everything depends, everything hinges on his resurrection. If Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead, there's no reason to believe we'll be raised from the dead. And if there is no resurrection from the dead at all, then the Apostle Paul is absolutely right when he says, If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Indeed. If there is no resurrection from the dead, we are to be pitied for being here this morning. Are we not? If there is no resurrection from the dead, we're wasting our time here this morning. We got up early for nothing. If there's no resurrection from the dead, we are fools for being here this morning. And those who are not Christians have every right to ridicule us and make fun of us. You see, everything hinges upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But the scriptures say on eyewitness testimony, he has indeed been raised from the dead. As that angel told the women in our gospel reading, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Of course, the classic question is, if Jesus Christ has not been risen from the raised from the dead, then what happened to his body? Because there's no serious scholar that I'm familiar with that would deny that the tomb was empty. That's really not even historically a debatable point. So if he was not raised from the dead, where did the body go? All the Jewish and Roman authorities had to do was to produce the body, put it on display and say, See, here's that Jesus of Nazareth. They talking about raised from the dead. There he is. That would have been the end of Christianity. But they didn't produce the body because they couldn't produce the body because they didn't know where the body was. They knew where it was at one time in the tomb. But they had no explanation for why it was missing. Of course, we know that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And that's so important because his resurrection from the dead is the proof that he has defeated death itself and given us eternal life. Can you imagine somebody trying to sell that? How much money they could get for that? And yet it's free to us. And so Paul writes in our lesson, for as by a man came death, that's that whole sad, tragic story of the Garden of Eden. By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, because death is caused by sin. Jesus Christ has paid for sin on the cross. With sin paid for, with sin canceled, death itself has been defeated. That is the connection. And that's why on the third day, death could not hold Jesus Christ. So then, where is the body of Jesus Christ? Well, everywhere. 
Everywhere? Yes, everywhere. For after he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, which is the very dwelling of God. And he sat down at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, which means that now as a human being, this man, Jesus Christ, always and fully exercises the very power of God. How can that be? Because he's not just a human being. Oh, he's a human being just like us, but he's also God in human form. That's how he can be present everywhere. And that's what Paul says of Jesus. He must reign. He must rule until he's put all enemies under his feet. Do you understand how comforting this is? This means the very same Jesus Christ who loved you so much to deny himself. Loved you so much to deny his awesome power and glory as God to die for you. That same Jesus Christ now rules over all things. That same Jesus Christ who died for you watches over you each and every day of your life. And he listens to all your prayers. Talk about having friends in high places. And despite all the suffering and pain and problems and death that we see in the world, it is still true, Jesus Christ rules over all things. Because by his sin, suffering, and death, and his resurrection, he has defeated all those things. One of my favorite Bible passages is John sixteen thirty three, where our Lord Jesus says, In this world, you will have tribulation. Well, there's the sin and the suffering and the pain and the death. But then he goes on to say, Take heart. I have overcome the world. And that's his victory over sin and pain and problems of death. And can you imagine any other human being saying something like that other than Jesus Christ and getting away with it? That's because of who he is. And because he has conquered sin, he has conquered death. And he does reign and rule at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So then, who is to be pitied? Certainly not those who believe and trust in Jesus Christ. The ones to be pitied are the ones who do not believe, who do not trust in Jesus Christ. And on the judgment day, this will be clear for all to see when our Lord Jesus comes back visibly at the end of the world to judge the living and the dead. All the arguments about Jesus, all the disputes about Jesus, all the doubts about Jesus will all go away. Because it will be clear for all to see. Why is that? Because on the day that Jesus returns, all the dead of every human being who's ever lived, including those who do not believe in him and do not trust in him, will all be raised from the dead to stand before Jesus Christ on the judgment day. And for those who have not trusted in him, that will indeed be a fearful day, for it will be a day that they will be condemned to hell forever. And there will be no appellate courts. There will be no second chances. Now, you and I have discussed it many times how hell is certainly not a popular subject among people. Well, so what? Neither is cancer. What's my point? Well, just because something is not popular doesn't mean it's not true. Just because something that's popular doesn't mean it's not real. Cancer is cancer, whether it's popular or not. And so is hell. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, if there is no hell, why should we believe in Jesus? If everyone's going to heaven, 
Why should you be here this morning? These are great questions. If there's no hell, why should we believe in Jesus? Because we believe in world peace, the end of war, helping the poor? No. What was Jesus doing on the cross? Why not just stay sleeping in this morning? No, all of humanity, every human being will stand before Jesus Christ on the judgment day. And so Paul says, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. After destroying every rule and every authority and every power. Can you imagine just for a moment on the day of the resurrection to be standing before Jesus Christ and you did not believe in him? For on that day, we will not see the Jesus that we read about in the scriptures. We will not see this lowly Jesus, this Jesus in poverty, walking around and suffering and dying. Oh, no. The next time we see Jesus Christ, we see Jesus Christ in all his power and all his glory as God and all the angels with him. You see, that's why we want to tell as many people about Jesus as possible. For we must never forget, our gracious God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. He died and he rose for all. Our gracious God wants everyone to know the joy of believing in Jesus Christ and the peace of the forgiveness of their sins and peace with God and victory over death itself in eternal life. And so I ask you this morning, do you know somebody? Is there someone in your life who at this present moment would stand before Jesus without faith in him? Because when our Lord Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, all those who have believed in him, all those who have trusted in him, have nothing whatsoever to fear. Sins forgiven, peace with God, victory over death itself. And so then Paul says that Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the guarantee of our resurrection from the dead. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as in Adam, all die. So also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. In other words, Jesus' resurrection from the dead guarantees our resurrection from the dead. Do you see what I mean, what I've said several times in this sermon? Everything hinges on Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And because of that and our sharing of that, as we approach our own death, this is a promise to us. So that we need not fear death. This is so beautifully expressed in one of our hymns in our service book. Hymn number 883. All praise to thee, my God, this night. Stanza 3. Maybe some of you remember these words. Teach me to live that I may dread the grave as little as my bed. Teach me to die that so I may rise glorious at the awful day. Yes, peace. Peace through the forgiveness of our sins and victory over death in a new life. Everything you see hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. At the beginning of this sermon, I mentioned how the Scottish doctor, James Lynn, discovered a cure for scurvy because he found the cause of scurvy. Science, of course, is a wonderful thing, and science gives so many wonderful gifts, so many wonderful blessings to mankind. And yet science and medical doctors ultimately will never find a Solution to death, because it's not a scientific problem. It is a theological problem. As you and I know, the cause of death is sin, rebellion against God that cuts us off 
from life itself. But we know the message of Jesus Christ. All of our sins have been paid for. Our debt to God has been canceled and we have victory over death itself. And that's why death could not hold him. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead. Who then is to be pitied? Certainly not those who believe, who trust in him. The Lord is risen and God's people say, Amen and Alleluia. Amen. (laughs) So good. And again, what's the emphasis? Because Christ is risen, we will be raised. God doesn't promise to raise your dreams or even to raise a dead marriage. But he promises to raise you in Christ. Our next sermon comes to us via Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, uh, Colorado. And uh, it's Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. And uh, this is um, a sermon that he preached uh last year on uh, on on Easter and his enthusiasm for this Easter thing is just amazing Easter thing that's kind of a bad way of putting it but here's pastor Brian Wolfmuller Christ is risen he is risen indeed hallelujah amen i think i would make a terrible college basketball coach or baseball coach Because as the Easter hymns kept coming into my office to clamor for a spot in the service, I couldn't cut any of them. (laughs) But this one made the lineup without question, the starting pitcher. Listen to verse 4. It was a strange and dreadful strife when life and death contended. There on that Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and first Easter Sunday. But the victory remained with life. The reign of death was ended. Holy Scripture plainly says that death is swallowed up by death. Its sting is lost forever. Alleluia. There are millions of graves in the world. And each one of them is still occupied. All but one. There is a grave in a garden outside of Jerusalem a tomb whose privilege it was to hold the very body of our Lord for three days, but that is enough. That grave is empty. The women who entered it almost 2,000 years ago saw that it was so, and the angels testified to the fact with these beautiful words, do not be afraid. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where he, where they laid him. That place was empty. The tomb was empty. It was vacant. For Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. <laughs> this is so good. A minute and 55 seconds into it, and it's just dripping with Jesus. Oh, and him raised from the dead. And, and you can hear the, the passion and joy. Oh, this is a great sermon. But what, dear friends, was he doing there in the first place? Why were the women looking for Jesus in a grave? If all we have before us is the gospel appointed for today, it's like starting a book at the last chapter. I don't know if you've ever been in this situation. You're watching a movie, some sort of dramatic thriller, and someone comes in right at the last scene. 
and you're, and you're, and you're trying to watch, and they know that things are important that are going on, but they don't understand any of the plot. Who's that guy? What's he doing there? Why does he have blood on his face? Who's she? Where is she going? Why are they there? What's happening? <laughs> Quiet. If this ever happens to you, the best thing to do is simply to pause the movie and to explain to the person who came in everything that's happened. And that's what we have right now. We're going to hit pause. And we're going to ask the questions and try to figure out why these women are running to this tomb early in the morning and why the tomb is empty. The story, the history, begins a quite a while ago. In fact, the beginning of the story is Adam and Eve in the garden. There, when God created them, everything was good. There they walked with God. There they were alive and knew nothing of death and of evil and of sin. They had Adam and Eve in the garden, had God's gifts in abundance and His one command, don't eat of that fruit in the tree in the midst of the garden. The day you eat that, you'll die. Our Adam and Eve, though, did just that. They ate. Eve was deceived by the devil and ate the forbidden fruit and gave it to her husband and he ate and, as Paul says, through one man sin entered the world and with sin death. Skeptics of the biblical account will often comment at this point that God must not have meant what he said. After all, Adam and Eve ate from the tree that God commanded and they didn't die that very day like God promised. True enough, their heart didn't stop. They kept on breathing. But if you want to see the picture of death in the Scriptures through the eyes of the Bible, then listen to this verse after the fall into sin. Genesis 3.8 And they, that is Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and the, his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hid themselves from God. This is horrible. One of the joys of being a father, and all of you who are fathers know this, is coming home to your children. And when they're old enough to walk, or kind of toddle along, you open the door and they come running to you to give you hugs and kisses and to tell you how their day was. This is how it should have been when God came walking in the garden to Adam and Eve. They should have run to Him, grabbed His legs, embraced Him with kisses, and told them about their day. But instead, they go and they hide from God. They wrap fig trees around themselves. They realize that the presence of God is a dangerous thing for them. They know their sin and their guilt and they're ashamed. And instead of running to God, they run away from Him. This, dear saints is what it means to be dead. Instead of running towards God, it's to flee from Him. It's to be ashamed of ourselves. It's to know that the presence of God is a threatening danger to us. Some of you know this. You know even of the difficulty of coming to church. There's something dangerous here. Or better, there's something here at church that is not in tune with what is in our own minds or what's in our hearts, or what's on our lips, or what it is that we do and we think every day. 
Adam and Eve sewed fig leaves together to cover their shame. And it seemed like that was just fine as long as they were with the devil. But as soon as they hear the footsteps of God, they know that that is not enough and they run for it. It's not enough. We cannot cover our sin and our shame in the presence of God. It is real. We should be running to Him. But we find ourselves running away from Him. And the problem is not His. It's not God's problem. He is as good and as patient and as generous as He always was and always will be. No, the problem is with us. Our sin, our death, our rebellion. But God calls out Adam and Eve. He stands them right in front of them. He removes all the bushes and everything that they would hide themselves in. And he asks them, who told you that you were naked? Did you do what I forbade? And here comes God's judgment and his sentence on their sin. If you would believe me, these words that God speaks to Adam and Eve in the garden are the reason that the women are going to the tomb to find Jesus. God says to the devil and Adam and Eve standing there, I will put enmity between you, devil, and the woman and between your seed, sin and death, and her seed, the Messiah. The seed, the promised one, will crush your head and you will crush his heel. It's at this point in the ancient garden that God declares war against the devil and against sin and against death. God says to the devil, you cannot have them, Adam and Eve and their children, you and me. You cannot take them. You cannot rule them. But this war that God declares would not be without cost. The devil rages against God. And we sinners, how about this? We sinners find ourselves fighting in this battle most often with the devil against God who's trying to save us. For we are sinners. That is, we are traitors. We've deserved God's anger and His punishment. God is at war. And even though he fight, we fight against Him, He is not fighting against us, but for us. So comes Jesus, the eternal God. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten of the Father before all worlds. For us men and for our salvation, He comes down from heaven and is incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. He took a hold of our flesh and our blood so that He could end this battle once for all. He took a hold of our flesh and blood so that He could also take a hold of our sin and our death. That ancient condemnation that God spoke in the garden to Adam and Eve, you shall surely die, is spoken to Him in our place on the cross. He surely dies. When our Lord Jesus goes to death, He's going to your death. When He hangs on the cross, He is hanging on your cross. When He's forsaken by God, He is suffering your hell and my hell and winning for us forgiveness and life and salvation. This is who Jesus is. And it is why He died. And it's what He's doing in the tomb. He is there dying for us. So now we're all caught up. 
We know what He's doing. We know why the women are going on that Sunday morning early to finish the job that they couldn't do on Friday. It was, after all, the beginning of the Sabbath, and they didn't have time to do all of the proper burial customs. So they go to finish treating with love and compassion the body of Jesus, but He is not there. He is risen. Death could not hold Him. When the tomb took a hold of Jesus, it was like death swallowed a hand grenade. And three days later, it goes off. And death is done. Its teeth are knocked out. Jesus' sacrifice for sin is acceptable in the eyes of God. Jesus wins the victory on the cross. And that victory is officially declared in the resurrection. Is it enough? Yes. On Easter Sunday, we hear that eternal yes echoing from the heavens. It is enough. Jesus has won the victory. The example, and here's an example for you. Think of the Olympics. The race is won in the Olympics when the runner crosses the line before everyone else. But that victory is declared when the racer stands on the podium and is draped with the gold medal. On the cross, our Lord Jesus crossed the finish line of our redemption. It is finished, He cried. Three days later, the Father lifts Him up to declare His victory. Jesus lives. The victory's won. Sin, death, and the devil have lost. The war that they started in the garden is finished in the garden tomb. And so they have lost their claim on you. God's anger over your sin has been spent completely and not on you, but on Jesus. There is no longer anything to fear in death because there is no longer any wrath to fear from God. Your sins are forgiven. Oh, this is so good. You know, I'm going to play one more of his from a couple of years ago. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are washed. Your iniquity is swept away. Your transgressions are forgotten. They were nailed with Jesus to the cross and left behind like the grave clothes in the empty tomb. Your guilt, your shame, the fig leaves that you have wrapped around your sin to hide it from God and men. This is no longer necessary. Dear friends, Jesus has something better. In his resurrection... He has for you the robes of His righteousness, made white and holy in His blood, spilt on the cross for you. <laughs> oh, such clear gospel. Oh, this is so good. So it is that one day soon, our graves and the graves of our loved ones will also be empty. The claim that death has on you has been broken. You have been forgiven. And so you will be risen, glorious, incorruptible, eternal, beyond the reach of sin and death. Even if your dreams die and your marriage dies, this will be true for you. And the devil, there you will be with Jesus forever. For his resurrection means your forgiveness and your resurrection as well.
Dear saints, this is your comfort and your peace. For Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Mm, good stuff. You know what? I got to play one more. <laughs> oh, consider me like a, a good gospel Easter sermon junkie at this point. I've had a taste and I've just got to get another fix. Here is uh, Pastor Wolf Mueller's 2007 Easter sermon. In the name of the crucified and resurrected Lord, in the name of the firstborn from the dead, in the name of the one who lives, who was dead but now is alive forevermore, in the name of he who holds the keys of hell and death, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Dear saints, beloved, sinners who bask in the glow of the forgiveness of sins which radiates from Christ's open tomb, Christ is arisen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Indeed. He is risen indeed. In fact, in actuality, in history, in real life, 1,977 or so years ago, not in mythology, not in spirit, not in a mass hallucination or in the distraught and disturbed minds of the apostles and disciples, not in their pious hopes, indeed, Jesus takes back His crucified and dead body takes it up from death, steals it from the grave, and he leaves the tomb. Je oh, that was beautiful. Yeah, Jesus' body was stolen. It was stolen by Jesus himself. He ended up walking right out of the tomb with it. <laughs> this is so good. Jesus even folds the grave clothes as he leaves, like he's making his bed. For grave clothes are for the dead, not for the living. Jesus walks out of the tomb, for tombs are for the dead, not for the living, just as the angel preaches. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. It's empty. What a marvelous sermon that these angels preach from a marvelous pulpit, the empty tomb and the rolled away stone. The tomb is empty. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. But pastor, come now. That's never happened before. No one's ever done that. No one in the history of the entire world. No one has ever come out of the grave resurrected, never to die again. You do not expect, when you walk through the cemetery, to see people climbing up out of the graves and dusting themselves off and going about their way, do you? I don't think so. Why not? Because it doesn't happen. Never in the world has it happened. And so we have the very reasonable expectation that the dead stay dead. 
That's why the women in the Gospels are having so much trouble. They go and they see the empty tomb and they conclude the only rational thing there is to conclude, someone must have taken the body. The disciples also are troubled. They're perplexed. And why? The same reason you would be. Because you know, as well as them, that death has a permanent fixture. It, it is a grip that does not let go. Never lets go. But friends, Jesus doesn't care. He doesn't care about nevers. He breaks through. He, he doesn't care that death had never been overcome. That the grave had never been left behind. That no one had ever risen. He doesn't care if bodies always rot dust to dust. Ashes to ashes. Dirt to dirt. Jesus, your Jesus, doesn't care about that. He bursts out of the grave. He empties the tomb. He breaks the darkness. He destroys death. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. His resurrection is just as real as His birth. Just as real as His death. Just as real as the bowl of cereal or whatever you had to eat this morning. Or the donuts waiting for you out there. That real. Jesus was touchable. Put your hands in my side and in my wounds. He has flesh and blood. He eats and drinks and roasts fish. He's that real. Seen by the women and by the disciples and by 500 more. Real. Indeed. He is risen. In actuality. In truth. In history. Indeed. If it were not so, we might as well pack up now and go home and have a nice lunch. We could sell the church to some bingo parlor and split the money and all get new sets of golf clubs if Jesus was not risen. That's what Paul says. If Christ is not risen, our preaching is in vain. It's empty. It's words. It's wind. If Christ is not risen, your faith is also vain. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. If Christ is not risen, you are still in your sins. If in this life we only have hope in Christ, only in this life and not in the life to come, we are of all men the most pitiable. For if the dead do not rise and Christ is not risen, let us eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Everything, absolutely everything that we teach and we preach and we believe and we confess and we pray and we hope for depends on this, that Christ indeed is risen. For if He is not, we are still in our sins. Still in our sins. Now that's starting to get, I think, down to the nitty-gritty of Easter. Why it's important to us. Why it matters. For St. Paul says, if Jesus was not risen from the dead, we would still be trapped in our sins. You see, Easter is much more important than simply life and death. 
It's a matter of sin and forgiveness. For in God's way of doing things, sin and death are always wrapped up together, bound together. Remember in the garden, God says, if you eat of it, you will surely die. He promised it, warned Adam that. And Paul says, the wages of sin is death. Because it is the result of sin, death stands as a constant reminder of our sinfulness, of the fact that we cannot, no matter how hard we try, by our own strength, obtain immortality or everlasting life or really anything good. And even more than that, the sting of death is sin, says Paul. Sin fills death with terror. Because sin puts us under God's righteous judgment. Death then is simply a reminder that we cannot escape this judgment. For it is appointed for man once to die and then to be judged. Our death is God's no to all of our attempts to be our own God and to have things our own way. And so it stands as our problem, our trouble, our last enemy, sin. And death. We are sinners. And we are dying. In fact, because we're under God's judgment, we're already dead. We are. We are good for nothing. But filling up graves. And burning forever. That's what we sinners deserve. And dear saints, please hear this. For if you do not believe this, then there is no good news for you in Easter. What you and I deserve, because of our sin, is death. And not just keeling over in our sleep, eternal death, God's wrath, hell. We deserve, we deserve to be whipped and to be beaten and to be rejected by man and by God, we deserve darkness and wrath. We deserve something like the cross. My sermon goes on from there. But perhaps we ought to pause a bit and think about it. You see, we're tempted to think of ourselves as pretty good. As if we're not that bad. As if we deserve good things from God. Nice things. Happy things. Or at least we don't deserve His anger. Surely we don't deserve hell. We haven't been that bad. But do you see that our own thoughts about ourselves and how good we are are in themselves a betrayal of how sunk we are in sin? Imagine a man who falls off a ladder and he breaks his leg, cracks his knee, busts his pelvis, splits open his liver. He's in bad shape. But among all of these things, he also breaks his back so that he does not feel any of his injuries. And you see him lying on the ground and you say, how do you feel? And he says, fine. Fine. Just help me up and I'll walk home. That's what we think of ourselves, isn't it? We're fine. 
We don't even feel the pain of our own sin. We don't even think we deserve it to be strung up and crucified. But it's true. We deserve the cross. But dear saints, your Jesus gets it instead. He suffers for your sins. He dies your death in your place. God's wrath in your place. Hell in your place. On Good Friday, we saw it. We saw what our future should have been. So that on Easter Sunday, we see what our future will be. On the cross, you see what you deserve. So that on Easter, you see what you will get. That's the good news of Easter. That's our comfort and hope. That's why Paul says if Christ is not risen, we're still in our sins. But He is risen. And so we are not in our sins. We have this comfort, this sure hope from Paul, 1 Corinthians 15. Now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection from the dead. By Adam all died. Even so in Christ all are made alive, each in his own order. Christ first. The first fruits, and then all those who are Christ's that is coming. You will be called forth from the grave. But, Pastor, this has never happened before. I told you, Jesus doesn't care about nevers. He's promised you, His baptized, His church, His forgiven sinners who bear His name. He has promised you that on the last day He will call you up out of the grave and give you eternal life and joy without end in His kingdom. Bliss and happiness. On that day, the angels will stand in your empty tomb and they will say, they are not here, they are risen. This is our sure confidence and our great hope. And because of this, all of your pain, all of your sickness, all of your suffering, all of your heartache, all of your trouble, these are carried by Jesus and they are for you simply the birth pains of eternal life. Your sin is forgiven. Your conscience is cleansed. Your guilt is taken away. Your shame is covered. Your death has lost its sting. Your grave is open. Your despair is over. Your devil is crushed. Your fears are banished. For your Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Oh, wow. Wow. That... <laughs> Wow, that I can listen to that just all day. That, wow, I, I I dare not add anything else to that. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, and that means we depend upon your generous financial gifts and contributions in order to continue to bring this important, Christ-centered, gospel-centered 
Proclamation of Christ and Him crucified for your sins and raised for your justification, Discernment Radio. You can support us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. And uh, when you uh, join our crew, you get access to our Pirate Cove, and what you're doing is you're signing up to automatically contribute a mere $6.95 every month to Fighting for the Faith. So fightingforthefaith.com, click on the Join Our Crew button. Of course, if you'd like to uh, fill in the amount as to how much you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, what'd you think? Would love to get your feedback. You can email me. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>